0: Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Second Kings. We're continuing in our study of Second Kings. We are up to chapter nine. We just read the first part of that chapter in the responsive reading, and let's read a few more verses. Here, are verse eleven. The messenger went to Jehu, gave him a message from the Lord, and so then Jehu came forth. Verse eleven of Second Kings chapter 9, Then Jehu came forth to the servants of his Lord, and one said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? The mad fellow was the prophet. And he said unto them, Ye know the man and his communication. And they said, It is false. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus spake he to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had kept Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, because of Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram was returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him, when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If it be your minds, then let none go forth nor escape out of the city to go to tell it in Jezreel. Let's bow in prayer, O Lord, we pray that Thou would open up Thy word to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So here we come to these histories of the Old Testament. And we are studying through the book of 2 Kings and these histories of the Old Testament. These are true stories. Really happened, literally happened. And the beauty of this history of the Old Testament, as I've said before and will say again, is that we get God's commentary on the events. And you know, the Old Testament is written for our examples, to learn how to live to learn how to serve God, to learn how to do things. It's in the Old Testament. And, you know, we're going to see some things here in this passage today that will help us in our lives today. And, you know, this history, it seems like a lot of names and places and all those things. And people get kind of tired of looking at all this history and all these names and things. But, you know, it's very valuable very valuable. These are examples that we're supposed to learn from and see how God deals with men. Well, you know, I've been reading a a book in my free time here, just started it a couple weeks ago, on Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson was one of the most famous and important presidents of the United States. The title of the book is American Lion, and in fact, it it, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, this book. It's quite good, and the guy's quite an honest reporter here on the life of Andrew Jackson. He was president of the United States from 1828 to 1836, uh, way back before the Civil War. But he was a very... Impressive guy. He was the winner of the general in the Battle of New Orleans against the British in the War of 1812 and won the battle there. But you know, this writer of this book is very interesting. He credits a lot of Andrew Jackson's makeup to his sitting in church when he was a kid. And I'm I'm pretty sure this guy who wrote this book is not a Christian. Uh, But he can see that in the life of Jackson. And it says here about Jackson, He attended services at the meeting house throughout his early years. And these childhood Sabbaths are worth considering in trying to solve the mystery of how a man with so little formal education and such a sporadic interest in books developed his sense of history and of humanity. How did Andrew Jackson develop his sense of history and humanity? Well, this author goes back to his time he spent in church as a child, in the Presbyterian Church in North Carolina. And he grew up in the Presbyterian Church. He was an orphan. He was the first president of the United States who came from a commoner background to be president of the United States. Well, then he goes on here to say, From his babyhood then, Andrew Jackson probably spent between three and four hours nearly every Sunday for about 14 years hearing prayers, psalms, scripture, sermons, and hymns. Highly intense language evoking the most epic of battles with the greatest of stakes. In the words flowing from the minister on all those Sundays, Jackson would have been transported to the realms where good and evil were at war, where kings and prophets on the side of the Lord struggled against the darker powers of the earth. Well, what are we doing today? We're looking at that exact thing, where the kings and prophets on the side of the Lord battled, Against the forces of evil. And then he goes on to the effect on Jackson. Throughout his life, when he was under pressure, Jackson returned to the verses and tales of the Bible he had first heard in his childhood. He referred to political enemies as Judases. And at one horrible moment during the 1828 campaign where they had a lot of uh, mudslinging, Jackson's mind raced to the language and force of the Bible. And he said, Should the uncircumcised Philistines send forth their Goliath to destroy the liberty of the people and compel them to worship mammon, they may find a David who trusts in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. For when I fight, it is the battles of my country. But anyway... He quoted the Bible. He had great influence from the Bible when he heard those stories of the kings and the prophets when he was a kid. And that's what we're studying right now, here in 2 Kings. These are examples that we can learn from today. And one thing we want to look at today is, you know, there are prophecies in the Bible. Just the introduction here. There are prophecies in the Bible of the future. And we've gone through the book of Revelation and we've studied that in detail. But you know there are all kinds of different views on Revelation. And a lot of people don't want to take the Revelation literally, the prophecies of the future literally. But we're going to see in this passage here that the prophecies in the past were fulfilled literally, exactly literally right here. And so here we have Elisha. Elisha is still here. Elisha the prophet. And he calls one of the, here at the beginning of chapter 9, he calls one of the children of the prophets. One of the prophets in training here. uh, Apprentices in the prophet's school. He says, go and take oil in thine hand and go to Ramoth Gilead and anoint Jehu king of Israel. And Jehu was the general at that time. He was not king. Joram was king. And here God had ordained a revolution here. God had ordained a change of government. And this was a treasonous thing to do, but God had ordained it. And so this prophet went to anoint Jehu king over Israel, even though he wasn't king yet. And you go down to verse 6. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head. You know, uh, there are anointings with oil in the Bible. There were anointings of kings to be a king. Uh, there's anointing with oil in the New Testament of sick people. Uh, remember, the good Samaritan found the guy beat up by the side of the road, and he anointed him with oil. That was a medical treatment there. Anyway, he poured oil here, verse 6. Uniformly during the Old Testament, the method of doing things was sprinkling and pouring. And that's what we have in our baptism in the Presbyterian church. So it says, verse 6, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And you know, that's interesting that he would call Israel, the northern kingdom, the people of the Lord. They were a country that had strayed far from God, but God had not given up on them completely yet. And they're still called the people of the Lord. And then, verse 7 And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab, thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hands of Jezebel. So here we have Jehu is anointed to smite the house of Ahab. Ahab's long gone here. Joram, who's on the throne right here, is the grandson of Ahab. And uh, you know, it is confusing here. You have Ahaziah and Joram. In the southern kingdom, there was Ahaziah and Joram. And in the northern kingdom, there was Ahaziah and Joram. And I think they named their children after each kingdom there. But anyway, here we have Joram as the king, the grandson. But he's going to be smitten by Jehu. And why was he going to be smitten? To avenge the blood of the prophets, the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. You know, God always ordains the means to an end when he ordains an end. When God ordained that he would judge Ahab's house, he ordained the means that Jehu was going to do it. When God ordains that you're going to get saved, God ordains the means that you get saved. God ordains that somebody gives you the gospel. There's a means to an end and so when god wanted to judge israel he had nebuchadnezzar come in and judge the land of judah and so jezebel was very wicked very wicked you know you really wouldn't usually want to name your children jezebel uh, even though i ran into a girl recently that's named jezebel but anyway uh you know you really w- wouldn't do that she was wicked wicked in the Bible, at least I wouldn't want to. But you know, Jehoshaphat, remember we looked at last time about how Jehoshaphat did not want to be separated. Actually, that was the time before last. He didn't want to be separated from the wicked. He wanted to join with all the wicked to have a big thing, just like Billy Graham did and other people do today. Well, Jehoshaphat In order to unite with the wicked, to have a big deal, and a big project, he took the daughter of Jezebel to his son, the daughter of Jezebel to his son, Joram. And uh, was that a good idea? Not at all. And that Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel, she was a great curse to the land of Judah when he wanted to unite with the wicked. And the prophet reproved Jehoshaphat for that. The prophet said, shouldest thou help the ungodly and love those that hate the Lord? And that's what he was doing, even though he was a basically godly king. And Then you go on here, verse 8. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And we see all through here that the forebears are united with the descendants. Ahab's descendants are being judged here for the sin of Ahab. America is being blessed today because of the faith of our forebears, of our uh, godly forebears in America. And so, then there's a prophecy given here, verse 10. A very specific prophecy. And it says, The dogs shall eat Jezebel. The dogs shall eat Jezebel and the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. How is that prophecy going to be fulfilled? Is it going to be fulfilled exactly literally? Are the dogs actually going to eat her? Yes, they are. And, you know, we could come to that prophecy at that time and say, well, you know, there'll be people that are acting like dogs that will, uh, you know, uh, do things to her. No, it's the dogs shall eat her. And then it tells where she's going to be eaten. She's going to be eaten in Jezreel, the place where they had the palace. And third of all, there will be none to bury her. That's a curse here. A curse not to be buried. All through the Bible, it's a curse not to be buried. And today, there's the question, should I be cremated? Should I be buried? Well, that was not a question in Bible times. And that wasn't just having to do with the culture. They put great stock by burial. And it's something that I believe we should put great stock by as well. it's in keeping with the resurrection. Well, there'll be none to bury her. Then let's go on. Verse 11, Jehu comes out after he's anointed and the people ask him what went on. And Jehu says, well, you know the man and his communication. So evidently the generals there, the soldiers, they all knew who the prophets were. And they knew who were the children of the prophets, the training prophets as well. And then verse 13, as soon as they heard, they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and said, Jehu is king. There was no delay whatever. They were ready to put this prophecy into practice here. They hasted as soon as they heard it. And then verse 14, it tells us what, he, what happened here. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, this is not the king Jehoshaphat, this is another Jehoshaphat. A lot of names are common in the Bible. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, conspired against Joram. He conspired. He committed treason. He was going to overthrow Joram. And it was something he was actually told to do by the Lord. And there are times for changing governments. There was a time for changing the government of the United States back in the American Revolution. There are times for that. And here's the time to change the government right here. And just because we're supposed to obey the government, that's true, that's our normal thing we should do, doesn't mean that a government can never be changed. And then we have verse 15. We have Joram. He went to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which he had received by the Syrians. And back in those days, the kings went out to battle along with the troops. They didn't stay back and just direct from the palace. They went out with the troops at the head of the troops, and they were wounded and killed in the battles. Remember David? When he got into trouble with Bathsheba, what did it say? It said, at the time that kings go forth to battle, he stayed at home and got into trouble with Bathsheba. Well, Joram, he went, had gone out to battle. He had been wounded. And so Jehu says, let no, none go out to tell of this conspiracy. And then we go on here, verse 16. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, was come down to see Joram. Was this a coincidence that Ahaziah came down there at that very moment? Ahaziah was the grandson of Jehoshaphat. And so we have the grandson of Jehoshaphat and the grandson of Ahab here. And they just happened to be together at the very moment of this revolution. It's not a coincidence. And there are no coincidences. God is in control of everything. He is in control. And he works everything together. You know, another thing I noticed in history just recently, did you know that, maybe some of you know this, but did you know that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on the same day? They died on but not only did they die on the same day they died 50 years exactly from the signing of the Declaration of Independence. They died on the 4th of July exactly 50 years later both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson die on the same day. Now is that just a coincidence? I don't think so. I think God worked that together to show his approval of the American Revolution. And I think it was uh, just the hand of God there to have all those things work together. And there aren't coincidences, and it wasn't a coincidence that Ahaziah had come down at that very moment to visit Joram. And then verse 17, and there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel, and he spied the company of Jehu as he came, and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take an horseman, and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So there went out one on horseback to meet him, and said, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. And the watchman said, told, saying, The messenger came to them, but he cometh not again. Then he sent out a second on horseback, which came to them and said, Thus saith the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thou behind me. You know, this is a very action story here, very much action. And then we go on here. And the watchman told, saying, verse 20, He came even unto them, and cometh not again. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, For he driveth furiously. Seems that Jehu had a reputation for driving fast. Furiously. And Joram said, verse 21, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah went out, each in his chariot. And they went out against Jehu and met him in the portion of Naboth the Jezreelite. And it came to pass when Joram saw Jehu that he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. And Joram turned his hands and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew a bow with his full strength and smote Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow went out in his heart and he sunk down in his chariot. Pretty graphic here. He got hit with the, with the arrow. The arrow went through his back, came out up in the front of him, through his heart. Well, anyway, here we have Jehu going to put this revolution into practice. And so these two grandchildren of Jehoshaphat and Ahab are there. And not by accident, they're there. And there's a watchman on the wall, and the watchman sees a long way off the Jehu is coming. He must have had a very long view. He must have saw them quite a few miles off. Of course, he's up at a tall tower there, and probably on a hill, hilltop. And so he saw Jehu coming a long way off. And so they had time to send out one, one horseman to meet him, and then another horseman to meet him. And then finally the kings go out to meet him. And they just happened to meet right where Naboth's vineyard was. Right at that very spot. Was that an accident? No. It was God's providence that they would meet together right at the scene where that sin had been committed against God when Ahab had killed Naboth and killed his sons, we're told here. He had killed them all to take Naboth's property. And so Ahab's son is right there and Jehoshaphat's son is right there and they meet Jehu right there. Well, it talks about how Jezebel had witchcrafts here in verse 22. Do we still have witchcrafts today? Yeah, we do. The power of Satan. I got witchcrafts right across the street from me there in Smyrna with the grounded souls, as I've mentioned them there before, with their metaphysical store there. Well, anyway, there's witchcrafts all over, and that's the power of Satan. And Jezebel had that. Well, let's go on here. Verse 25. Then said Jehu to Bidkar his captain. Take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth, and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord. And I will requite thee in this plat, saith the Lord, Now therefore take and cast him into the plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu followed after him and said, Smite him also in the chariot. And they did so at the going up to Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his sepulchre with his fathers in the city of David. And in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. So, here we have, they meet together right there at the field of Naboth. And then here it's interesting that uh, uh, Jehu says to his captain there, he says, don't you remember when we rode together with Ahab in the past? That this prophecy was given. It reminds me of the book, Uh, I Rode with Stonewall. Talking about uh, a guy who rode with Stonewall during the Civil War. That was the title of the book. And here we have Jehu. He could have written a book, I Rode with Ahab. Well, anyway, he rode together after Ahab, his father. And he had this burden laid upon him. Then verse 26 Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord, and I will requite thee in this plat, saith the Lord. Once again, how is prophecy fulfilled all through the Bible? How is prophecy fulfilled? How should we approach the book of Revelation? How should we approach prophecies for the future? A lot of people say, oh, well, I don't know how to approach them. I can't make any sense of it. I shouldn't read the book of Revelation or any of those prophecies. We should take them as literally as possible. Now, there there are some symbolic things. The dragon is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. But we should take prophecies literally. And here... The prophecy was given back there with Ahab that he would be requited right in that piece of ground, right there. And it happened. His grandson was killed right there, and his body was thrown on the ground right there in that very same spot. And once again, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, as Tim reminded you, that nobody ever gets away with anything. Ahab didn't get away with killing Naboth. He didn't get away with it at all, even though it looked like he got away with it. It looked like everything was fine, but it wasn't fine. But God, a lot of times in the Bible it says, but God, but God saw it when Naboth was killed. But God sees it when we sin. God sees everything. We don't get away with anything, even though we think we do. And so here we have uh, Joram is killed. And here we have also Ahaziah is killed. Ahaziah, the grandson of Jehoshaphat. And that's the result of Jehoshaphat wanting to get together with the ungodly and loving them that hate the Lord. His descendants were judged. And his grandson was killed here, Ahaziah. Well, then we go on to Jezebel, verse 30. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her face and tired her head and looked out at a window. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace who slew his master. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. And when he was come in and did eat and drink, he said, Go see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, this is Jezebel. So here we have the end of Jezebel. She was a bad influence on Israel. She was a bad influence on Judah through Athaliah, her daughter. She was a bad influence on Ahab. And so when she heard that Jehu was coming, what did she do? Well, she got herself fixed up. She painted her face, we're told. She put on makeup. She painted her face, and she tired her hair. She fixed up her hair. Well, you know, Jezebel did it. Does that make makeup wrong and, and fixing up your hair wrong? Well, we... Of course, it's not wrong to fix up your hair. And and I don't think it's wrong to uh, put on makeup. But the the point is to do it in moderation. Modest. Modest makeup. Modest fixing up of the hair. Modest apparel it talks about in the New Testament. It talks about it should be moderate and modest. Of course, the former pastor here, Keith, he, I remember him saying that if the barn needs painting, paint it, when it was about putting on makeup, and there's some truth to that, and, but the thing is, you don't want to overdo it, and it should be modest, and you know, it's, uh, the Bible talks about that we should dress modestly, that we should have not expensive clothes, costly apparel, it talks about in the New Testament. And, you know, the thing is, is that uh, it's kind of a blessing today on that line that furs are no longer in fashion. Because, you know, back in the past, it used to be a really big deal for women to wear these really costly fur coats that would cost thousands and thousands of dollars, and that's before the money was so inflated. And they'd spend huge amounts of money on these fur coats, and all of them wanted to have their mink coat and the different things. Well, we don't have that today, but there's still things like that today somewhat. But anyway, we should dress modestly, have a modest house, a modest income, a modest retirement. A Christian should be modest and modest in his painting, her painting of the face or whatever. And so here we have Jezebel looks out at the window and Jehu hollers up. And there's some eunuchs up there with her. And of course, eunuchs. They were always the ones in the palaces because the king didn't want anybody messing around with his wives. So they always had eunuchs in there. And so the eunuchs were up there with Jezebel, and he says, who is on my side, who? And the eunuchs looked out, and everybody was afraid of him, and he said, throw her down. And they threw her down, and she was killed. And... Her end was very ignominious. It was exactly according to the prophecy. Every point was exactly literally. Tremendously literal. The dogs would eat her. The dogs did eat her. And that's kind of foreign to us here because we don't have a lot of stray dogs around. Here in America, we have the history of the dog catcher and we don't leave stray dogs running around. In Brazil... They don't have dog catchers, and there are stray dogs everywhere, and, and it's, uh, you have their droppings everywhere, and uh, that's how Luke used to talk about Brazil, but anyway, they had stray dogs everywhere, and that's how it was here in Israel, and so the dr- stray dogs were there, and as soon as she was thrown down, and of course she was all bloody, and the blood was splattered, and the dogs all came and ate her up. And it's interesting what was left when, she was, when they were done eating. Just her skull, the feet, and the palms of her hands. Not the hands entirely, just the palms. And you know what that's leaving out? You know her skeleton wasn't there. The dogs had eaten up all the bones. The dogs had eaten everything. And, except for the skull there. They, and they found no more of her. And so it was fulfilled that the carcass of Jezebel, verse 37, shall be as dung upon the face of the field and the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, this is Jezebel. There was nothing left, hardly, of Jezebel. And this was fulfilled so literally. And so the dogs ate her. Dogs ate her in Jezreel. She was not buried as uh, with a full burial, they might they might have buried the couple pieces, but she didn't have a full burial, and she was cast out just as trash there in Jezreel. And that was the judgment upon her. So, how should we take prophecies for the future in the Book of Revelation? When in the Book of Revelation it says that there will be these creatures that come around and sting people, and they have the face of women and. All these things about those creatures, are those literal creatures? I believe they are. And the two witnesses in the book of Revelation that call down fire from heaven upon their enemies, are they literal people in the book of Revelation, the two witnesses? Yes, they are. And do they literally call down fire? Yes, they do. Did Moses literally call down fire there in Egypt? And it's just so many things in the Bible that we have these prophecies, so many of these prophecies from the Old Testament, and they were fulfilled literally. It shouldn't be a question of whether we ought to take prophecy literally. And we read in the call to worship this morning, we read about Zechariah there. And it talks about there in that passage, Zechariah chapter 9, it says that Jesus would come in riding on a donkey. Did Jesus come in literally riding on a donkey? Yes, he did. He wasn't just lowly, just symbolically lowly. No, he came in riding on a donkey. It's interesting. We studied this morning in Sunday school about Tyre and Sidon. Did you know that Jezebel was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians? And He says here she's a king's daughter. and and Ahab had gotten her from the Sidonians to be his bride. And then Tyre, where Paul landed there, that's talked about there back in Zechariah, about how uh, Alexander the Great would come and conquer the city of Tyre that nobody could conquer. And it was an island out in the sea, and they thought they were impregnable, but Alexander built a causeway out to the city and conquered it. And that's a A prophecy in the Bible that was fulfilled literally as well, that Tyre was taken. And so, uh, in the book of Revelation, when Babylon the Great is judged, when there's a conflagration and the people are out on ships looking at the smoke of her burning, is that going to be fulfilled literally? Exactly. Exactly. And so we have all those prophecies of the future that we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Is Christ coming back literally? Is Christ going to come back in the clouds just as we saw him go up into heaven back in the time of the apostles? Yes, he's coming back literally. And all these prophecies in the Bible of the future are going to come to pass literally. And we can depend on them. And we can draw comfort from them. And praise the Lord. You know, when we want to understand Scripture, the principle is compare Scripture with Scripture. And compare the prophecies of the Old Testament to the prophecies for the future. And praise the Lord for our blessed hope for the future. In Jesus, let's pray.